from WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station. Welcome. I'm Warren Odestulet, and this is A Baha'i Perspective. A Baha'i Perspective is a radio program of biographical interviews of people who have either chosen the Baha'i faith as a way of life or who have a relationship with the Baha'i faith. Today, I'm playing a telephone interview with Todd Ewing, a racial and cultural diversity trainer who is now integrating spirituality into his training curriculum. He has authored the book Seeing Heaven in the Face of Black Men to introduce this concept to diversity training. I started the interview by asking Todd where he grew up and what was it like growing up there. Well, that's an interesting question. I just wrote a book uh, about that. But I grew up in Minnesota, and I'm African-American, and so it's very interesting because we were the only black family for 15 miles in any direction for the first 10 years of my life. So we spent the first 10 years in Minnetonka, Minnesota, and then I spent a total of 32 years in Minnesota. Well, that was my origin. You mentioned you wrote a book. What's the name of the book? Well, the book is uh, called Seeing Heaven in the Face of Black Men, and it's a look at race in America. I wrote it because I feel like there needs to be, well, I'll put it this way, spirituality needs to be enter the equation in terms of addressing racial issues, and it's very challenging to introduce spirituality in a secular environment. So my book is an attempt to look honestly at what I consider to be the racial issues that still remain, and the challenges that there that remain, but also to say that if we tap our spirituality, that we can transcend the pain and emotion around these things and take ourselves to another place and, and build unity. So I'm trying to find a way to introduce spirituality into the dialogue about race. Now, how is it that your family ended up in Minnesota? That's an interesting question. My uh, parents grew up in uh, Iowa, of all places. They moved to, to Minnesota for a job and for schools. My dad knew that the schools were good in Minnesota, and so he thought he really wanted us to have an education, and so he moved us to Minnesota. What was religious life like for you growing up? Well, that's interesting, uh, because as a member of the Baha'i faith, growing up in Minnetonka, Minnesota, the only black family for 15 miles in any direction, we were a minority in two ways. The fact that we were black and Baha'i was sort of challenging, to be honest with you. My religious life at the time, my parents were very attentive to our religious instruction. But because I was already rejected in school for being black, I wasn't always very forthcoming about being a Baha'i. Right. That's just being honest because of the time and the place. I think every kid wants to be accepted no matter who they are. How did it happen that your parents became Baha'is? Well, my dad was the first one to become a Baha'i in our family, and he heard about the Baha'i faith. He had become a little bit disenchanted with religion because of his experiences growing up at a similar place that we were raised and. He felt like he was being treated in negative ways, if you, you know, for lack of a better term, 
by Christians, people who called themselves Christians. He was disillusioned with the religion. He was working part-time in this, I think, a radio repair shop, and somebody told him about the Baha'i faith, mentioned the Baha'i faith to him, and said uh, when he moved to Minnesota to look up the Baha'is. And so my dad did, and they say the rest is history. So he <laughs> became a Baha'i, and then my mom became a Baha'i, and then, of course, you know, my brother and my sister and myself became Baha'is. You had mentioned, Todd, that you experienced racism growing up. I guess probably you never stopped experiencing racism. Can you describe an example of what you had to deal with growing up as a kid in Minnesota? Well, you know, first of all, there's, I want to say this about Minnesota because there's a lot of things I like about Minnesota. Not what the wrong impression, <laughs> but the same. No, seriously, there's a, there's a quality about Minnesota that I think is, is, is an extremely fine quality and a lot of what I consider just genuinely friendly people. And at the same time, this is 1953, that's when I was born. The first year my parents moved into the house that we lived in, this was the year before I was born, they had to get the NAACP and lawyers and everybody to help them get in the house because the neighbors gathered and signed a petition, tried to keep my parents out, they threatened them. It was a big enough deal that it made the newspapers. And so that's kind of the world I came into. You know, that would be an experience in itself. And I think the overall experience, besides name-calling and, you know, me called nigger here and there and, you know, that sort of thing, which wasn't, like, prevalent, but it happened. You were ma- It was made clear to you that you were different. It was made clear that you weren't always welcome. It was made clear that people felt very uncomfortable around you. You know, all of that. Uh, you know, as a young person forming your identity and feeling like you just don't really fit in anywhere, but not really sure why. Because we didn't have, you know, we were young, we didn't have a lot of consciousness about what it meant to be black, and all we knew is that we were different than everybody else, and that difference made people uncomfortable. So that made us uncomfortable. It wasn't always overt. A lot of it was subtle, but body language, nonverbal communication can be very strong. And so the overriding feeling was we, we generally just felt left out, uh, excluded, that sort of thing. That doesn't mean we didn't have any friends, but just the overall sense of it. The way that we described it later in life is that the experience out there was traumatic. And we chose that word carefully because I, I tried to avoid that word because it sounded so dramatic. But as we looked at the experiences, uh, really it was it was dramatic. My question wasn't targeted toward Minnesota because I'm sure no matter where you were in, that, in, the, in the United States in that situation, Minnesota wouldn't have been unique. Yeah, <laughs> that's, that's true. Yeah. And I knew it wasn't. That was just my defending my home state. <laughs> <That's great. laughs> so I assume you graduated from high school in Minnesota? Yeah, I sure did. You yeah. know, I had, had similar experiences. I write about this in the book. I had similar experiences in middle school and high school. Of course, it, it was interesting because things started to change for me. I became Baha'i, actually, if you want to say formally, when I was 17 years old. But I was conscious of the Baha'i faith and its teachings on racial unity and racial justice and that sort of thing. And so I think, really, even though I wasn't calling myself a Baha'i, per se, in the back of my mind, I feel like I was being sustained by the Baha'i faith. And I don't know if that makes any sense. But in looking back, that's how I felt. 
but going through middle school and high school, I had similar experiences as because we moved out of Minnetonka, Minnesota, when I was ten years old, and moved into, into Minneapolis, but it's still predominantly white area. You know, the high school years were were challenging until about the middle of my junior year, and it was interesting because that was nineteen about seventy. You know, the civil rights movement had happened, and things were percolating their way up to Minnesota. <laughs> What I feel like happened was two things. I think the civil rights movement kind of hit Minnesota in a way, and at the same time, I should say the aftermath of the civil rights movement. And then at the same time, my athletic ability (laughs) increased, and I became a pretty good athlete, and so my popularity started to increase. And so that I kind of rode that wave of popularity, if you will, from uh, the middle of my junior year to to my senior year uh, in high school. So there was a, a transformation, and it's very interesting because I've been in touch with some of my classmates since I wrote this book to find out, you know, how they perceive me at that time. I know how I perceive my own experiences, but I was curious to see how they perceived what me being the only black person besides my brother and how they resonated with it, what experiences they had with it, what feelings they had about it. And that's some very interesting uh, feedback from them. What, can you go into a little bit what that feedback was? Well, I, I'll give you a, a couple pieces of feedback. There was, and this was something that made me think. I had what I consider one real good uh, male friend in high school. I was at his house occasionally, and I was talking to his mother. I'm still in touch with his family, and I was talking to his mother about the book, and we were talking about the experiences in in high school and. She told me uh, one time after I left her house, one of her neighbors came down and said to, her, said to her, what are you, a nigger lover? And she looked at him and she said, well, yeah, I guess I must be. It just hit me the other side of the coin. I knew what I was going through, but I didn't know what people who befriended me were going through in their experience, because she hadn't told me that, of course, back in those days, but she told me that now. So that that was interesting. And then I talked to uh, another woman that I didn't know real well. I had a, I told her I had a crush on her her whole crew. You know, because <laughs> these, these women run around in crews in high school, right? They're, yeah. they're, they're buddies. And I said, you know, in high school I had a crush on your whole crew, but I didn't think any would go out with me. And, and I, did I perceive that right? And she said, well, yes and no. She said, even if we had of wanted to go out with you, our parents would have killed us. And then she went on to explain kind of the variations on the theme, uh, what that was like. But she said she saw me in school like anybody else. So she was assuming I was having the same experiences that everybody else was having in school. So I thought that was interesting. She didn't perceive that I was experiencing anything any different. So your feedback back to her must have been interesting. Yeah. I said, yeah, I told her. I said, you know... (laughs) Then this is more like an email conversation, and so I just shared some of the experiences I was going through and how I felt being in school and even how I felt when I was interested in, in dating somebody and that whole experience. And so we've been having sort of an ongoing dialogue since mm-hmm. that time about the experiences. One of the things Baha'i Faith has done for me, because I think the teachings of, of the Baha'i Faith that talk about racial unity and racial justice are so, are so uh, emphatic, and then, of course, the ability to draw on the spirit of the Baha'i faith to, to help transcend some of the bitterness and frustration in, in sustaining me and overcoming some of the stuff that 
those experiences and the experiences that I still feel is pretty powerful. I don't know where I'd be if I didn't have the Baha'i Faith to draw on, not only the spirit of the Baha'i Faith, but the very specific teachings to really address this stuff. So for our listeners who may not be familiar with the Baha'i Faith, what are those teachings that encourage this unity, and, and what are the teachings of the faith, or what it was it about the Baha'i Faith that allowed you to get beyond the bitterness of racism? You know, in all honesty, the, the bitterness comes and goes. And I think I uh, read in a book recently that, you know, reconciliation and building unity is not a one-and-done thing because you continue to experience it. You're not always what I call on top of your spiritual game where you feel detached and feel loving and you feel all those things. The fact that I'm able to constantly draw on these teachings to remind myself of myself being a spiritual being that I am equal in the sight of God. And that sounds very simplistic, but I think as I define myself as an African-American male, I also primarily define myself as a spiritual being uh, who happens to be African-American. In terms of the very specific teachings of, of the Baha'i faith, you know, there, there's several. But the whole pivotal principle, the whole purpose of the Baha'i faith is to bring about the oneness of the human family, which implies the elimination of prejudices of all kinds. And that's not just a notion. The teachings and the writings, the scriptures of the Baha'i faith are very specific about this particular issue, and and specifically as it relates to racial prejudice in the United States. The the Baha'i writings have called racial prejudice the most vital and challenging issue facing this nation. It calls very directly on whites and blacks to work together to remedy this ill and gives each race a particular responsibility. Now, when I say uh, the elimination of racial prejudice, that means all kinds of racial prejudice, not just black and white. But in the Baha'i writings, there's a particular emphasis on the black and white because of the history of, of that problem. I'm encouraged constantly when I'm, when I'm reading these teachings about eliminating racial prejudice. I'm encouraged by the specificity of them and the insistence that the only way that we're going to have harmony in this country and harmony in the world is if there's unity between the races. I'm, I'm constantly being encouraged by that and going back to those writings. Now, what was your sport in high school? My main sports were baseball and football. So I ended up being the captain of the baseball team, which is an interesting thing. I considered that, uh, I don't know, the pinnacle. Uh, after going through all I felt I went through, and then I was selected, or however they voted, I don't remember, captain of the baseball team. So that meant something to me. But like I said, you know, things started to change a bit my junior and senior year uh, in high school. So those are my two main sports. Was there a time at which you examined your faith for yourself, you had grown up as a Baha'i. Right. Was there a point where you questioned your faith and reaffirmed your faith? You know, that's a great question. Absolutely. There's a couple time periods, really. First of all, when I was growing up and my parents, my parents really lived the Baha'i faith by example. In spite of all they were going through, and in spite of all the racial prejudice they were experiencing on a daily basis where we lived, as I look back and reflect, I never heard them say anything bad about anybody, ever. Looking back on that, that was pretty amazing. That was really because of their, their faith in the Baha'i faith and their, their adherence to the Baha'i teachings. I remember a couple things. I remember that they 
would always talk about unity and oneness and the oneness of religion and that sort of thing. And when I was in school, I would hear kids talk about who was going to hell and who wasn't. The contrast between that and my parents talking about unity and oneness and the love of all mankind and elimination of prejudices, even though I wasn't interested in being a Baha'i, I said to myself at that time, my brother the same, we said, you know, if we ever become any religion, it would probably be the Baha'i faith. So as we got older, and as I got into high school, you know, because of some of the insecurities I had from the way I grew up, I was sort of a mess. I was getting into trouble. I was doing things I shouldn't be doing without going into any detail about that. Sure. I go into some detail in the book, but, you know, just doing things I shouldn't be doing. And I, I knew that I was on a collision course. And it's at that point I said, well, I need to start looking at religion a little bit more seriously. I don't even know if I said religion. I probably said I need to look at my relationship with God a little more seriously. And so that's when I started taking a serious look at the Baha'i faith. Now, I was 16 years old, probably. I was asked to work. I wasn't a Baha'i. I was asked to work at a Baha'i school in uh, Elliott, Maine, called Greenacre. But I went there and worked there for a summer and was exposed to Baha'is from all over the world. That experience had a profound impact on me, just feeling that energy and that spirit and that diversity and that love. I was asked to come back and work the second year, and I think the second year I became a Baha'i. I might have that mixed up. I don't know if I became a Baha'i the first year or the second year, but one of those two years I became a Baha'i. And the question is profound because even then, when I was 27 years old, I remember again thinking that I had sort of still accepted this faith because my parents were Baha'is. And so it was almost like a another look at it when I was 27 because I didn't feel the depth that I really wanted to feel and I didn't feel the connection I really wanted to feel. So it's almost like I went through a whole reinvestigation, if you will, when I was 27. I don't know how to describe this, but I almost threw out everything I knew and then just almost started fresh and said, what do I really believe? And it still came back the same, but I felt like at that point I really owned it myself. That was a great question because that, those experiences are, are still profound for me. When you discovered the Baha'i faith for yourself the first time, going to Greenacre in Elliott, Maine, did that somehow change your outlook on what you wanted to do in life because you were at that age when you had to figure out, okay, what am I going to do now that I'm approaching adulthood? Yeah. Well, you know, I'll go back to the term traumatic. The only way I can describe how I felt is I just felt, even at that time, I felt just generally out of touch. I didn't feel like I was on firm ground and really knew a whole lot about myself. I didn't feel like I had a real strong identity, either as a black person or as a Baha'i. I clearly knew I wasn't white, but I didn't know what it meant to be black. I don't know if that makes sense. I was black, but hardly had a sense of what it meant to be black. As a new Baha'i, I didn't have really a Baha'i identity, so... Truth of the matter is, I felt lost, so I didn't have a sense of direction. When I graduated from high school, I didn't know what I wanted to do. My grades weren't that good in high school because I was going through what I was going through, and so I really was nervous about going to college. So I worked in a warehouse for about a year and a half. It actually was an outdoor warehouse in Minnesota, and it's cold. Oh, boy. (laughs) (laughs) cold. And so I realized after about a year I didn't want to do that the rest of my life. So I started applying to colleges, and I got accepted at a state university. I went there, and quite honestly, I 
my wife and I have talked about this many times, I worked so hard, not because I wanted to succeed, but because I feared failing. And so I would study like three hours for a 10-point quiz. And so the first year or two of college, uh, you know, I've constantly worked and worked and worked because I didn't want to fail. I had the dictionary in front of me all the time, I, you know, every, all of that. And my grades were pretty good. And by the time I was a sophomore, uh, I started to get a little bit of confidence. I remember when I took a black history class, and that was kind of an immersion in black history, and that had a transforming impact on me. At that point, I remember saying to myself, I'm going to work because I want to succeed, not because I'm afraid of failing. You know, simultaneously, I was becoming very active in the Baha'i community. So I was starting to get both what I consider a spiritual identity and and an identity strengthening what I consider my African-American identity. So, But it was just coming, you know, in those early years of, of college. What did you do after you went to college? Well, after I uh, graduated from college, I ended up working in juvenile corrections. I was a counselor for youth, a uh, recreation therapist, counselor for youth, and I did that for about three and a half years. And then I ended up applying for a job as minority affairs director at the university that I went to school. Uh, this was back in, God knows, about 1980. And so I applied and got that job. And so I spent five years uh, working as a minority affairs director at the university in St. Cloud and really immersed myself in, in addressing racial issues around the campus. That was my job, and I, I truly immersed myself in that. And again, very active in the Baha'i community. The support of the energy that the Baha'i teachings offered me in terms of a perspective on all this, I think, gave me the ability to relate to a lot of people on campus, regardless of how hard I was pushing the issue. And I pushed the issue pretty hard. I wasn't light about it because there were a lot of challenges there. But I think I maintained the right spirit in doing it. And I think that really had a lot to do with the balance I got from the Baha'i teachings. Well, five years into the job, I was spent. It was a very emotionally challenging job. I felt like I needed a change. And my wife and I, and I have an interracial marriage. And my wife and I had, at this point, two children. In our conversations, I said, I really don't want them to grow up like I grew up. They were 8 and 10 years old, and I wanted them to have a more diverse experience. They're biracial, even though I know there's only one race. I'm just using that term, biracial, for lack of better terms. So we talked about where we wanted to move, and there was a need for Baha'is in South Carolina, so we moved to South Carolina in 1985 and spent 20 years in South Carolina. And what I did is I went into business with a friend of mine doing racial and cultural diversity training, which I've done almost all of my adult life. So I've continued to pursue that goal of trying to work for racial unity and racial justice in the United States. And particularly my focus is between blacks and whites. That's been my focus most of my career. And are you still doing that today? Still doing that today, and I just wrote the book, and the book addresses that whole issue, and part of the reason I wrote the book is because in my work, I wanted to introduce spirituality as a viable tool to help us transcend some of this. I mean, one of the things I 
say in the book is that I think blacks and whites are in a state of emotional combat, and we can't seem to get out of it because of this this history that goes so deep. And it's always been spiritual. It's allowed all people to transcend and transform pain and turn it into something constructive. And so in all the years I've done the diversity training, I haven't been able to introduce that piece because it's very difficult to introduce it in a secular environment. But I think spirituality in general, you know, separate from a specific religion, is becoming a more um, prominent topic, and people are talking about it more. And so I felt like if I was going to keep doing this work, that I had to at least attempt to introduce the concept of spirituality as the most viable tool to create unity and harmony and justice. And I suggest in the, in the book, and I believe this, is spirituality causes us to draw on qualities that we can never draw on otherwise, causes and allows us to transcend, you know, the, the normal emotional responses we have, which, you know, in race issues get triggered by a word, a phrase, a conversation, and before you know it, there's steam coming out of everybody because it goes so deep. And so how do we get past that so we can actually live in a unified society and in a just society? Well, there's that deeper part of all of us that we can draw on. So I'm still doing that work, but I'm in transition, moving my training, my work, in terms of trying to integrate this spirituality concept. Can you do this kind of work, introducing spirituality in the same venues you had been doing your race unity work? It's new and fresh, and I've had some experiences with it. It's one of those things where I believe I'm going to have to find niches at first, and then I'm confident well, it'll expand because in my feeling, people are starved for connection. They're starved for spiritual connection. They're starved for unity. They're starved for justice. They want to tap that spirituality. It's almost like when Barack Obama was elected president, the feeling that we saw in, in, in Chicago and around the world, there was an energy of connectedness that so many of us loved. Now, there was also a backlash to that as well, but there was this energy and this spirit and this feeling of, yeah, you know, we can be like this. So it's almost like people want to go there. It was a, it was a spiritual experience, but nobody's helping lead them there, if you will. Nobody's saying it's okay to talk about spirituality. It's okay to talk about love. It's okay to talk about sacrifice for each other. It's not language you use in the workplace. It's not language you use on a college campus. But I think once you start using it, people resonate with it because there's something about it that feels right. So I just have to negotiate that. What's the name of your book again, Todd? The name of the book is called Seeing Heaven in the Face of Black Men. That title, Seeing Heaven in the Face of Black Men, is really a metaphor, heaven for me being a metaphor for strength and capacity and dignity and honor, because black men historically have been the group that have been the feared group, perceived criminal group, the, the ones that have been, in my feeling, maligned in a, in, a, in a particular way. And so the premise of the book is when blacks and whites actually tap that spirituality and learn to work together to create what I call a new dance as equal partners, when we actually start to do that, then one day Americans will expect to want to and actually see heaven in the face of black men. 
And so it's really a metaphor for the outcome. It'll be one sign that the United States has moved down the road toward racial unity and racial justice. And so it's a pretty candid book. I mean, it's very honest about the day-to-day kinds of experiences that, at least from my perspective, my life experiences, and I don't want to say all black people because I have my unique Minnesota, South Carolina, Washington, D.C., biracial family black experience, but that a lot of black people go through and why the energy is so, the the emotions uh, run so high about this. But at the same time, saying that, we, as black people, as well as white people, can tap that spirituality and create something, but we have to know the depth of the problem. And the depth of the problem helps us understand why spirituality is the only answer. That's what the book attempts to do, is to, is to draw that out, be very clear about what the issues are, but also be very clear that we have the capacity as spiritual beings to move forward and really create racial justice and harmony. And I think, for me, Going back to this whole election of Barack Obama, it was like we got a taste. Uh, and again, this isn't a political statement. This is a statement of just the energy that was taking place that people saw. We got a taste almost of what it could be like. And so now's the time not to get complacent. Now's the time to say, all right, let's all dig in and make that feeling that we felt that day or, somewhat, or the feeling so many of us felt. Let's, let's now try to make that a reality. But we've got to we've got to do the work. We've got to finish doing the work if we want that to be a reality all the time. So that's where I am with it. I, I remember I felt like there was this euphoric feeling that this is a new positive age, and it was so contagious all over the world. That euphoria has died down because I think Americans have a short attention span. Yeah. And as soon as things get tough or the decisions... Well, I think that's a, that's a good point. So for me, the energy was saying, okay, let's not let that happen. It's still there. The potential's still there. But we've got to resurrect it, and we have to be courageous, and we have to be, you know, I hate to use cliches, come out of our comfort zone, but we really have to be willing to jump in. But, you know, from the spiritual context. Because, you know, people call, have called that feeling a spiritual feeling, what they felt, that euphoria. But also... I think the other thing, which on the surface doesn't appear to be a benefit, but I think is very important, the other side of the coin is that his election has brought out the the prejudices that were below the surface are now surfacing. So a lot of things that were underneath are coming out. There's a lot of people that aren't excited that he's, a, he's the president, and there's lots of different ways that that's being demonstrated. And so some of the stuff that's beneath the surface is, is all coming up. So both, in my view, are going on, both the people that want to move forward, but also the people that are saying, we're going to dig our heels in. I've got this uh, analogy that I use, I don't know if I put it in the book, but it's pretty basic. It really, in a visual way, explains what you know. I think we have to do. Because, you know, we talk about darkness simply being the absence of light. And I tell people a lot of times in my workshops, if you put a candle in this room, and there's dark in this room, can you put enough dark in this room to make that candle disappear? Well, you can't. No matter how much dark you put in that room, that candle's still going to shine. And so what happens if the candle burns brighter? The candle burns brighter, then the dark disappears of itself, so it doesn't have reality. And that's how I feel about spirituality. If we, are, if we as human beings, become more just, become more loving, do all these things, 
But darkness doesn't have a force in itself. It's just that it's there because we're not shining bright enough. And I think it's spirituality that can help us to shine brighter. That, to me, is, is, is our job. How can we shine brighter on a daily basis? Which means sacrifice, which means courage, which means reaching out, which means being willing to suffer for unity. All of that is real. It reminds me of this Baha'i teaching in regards to good and evil. And maybe you could explain the Baha'i concept of good and evil. The Baha'i teachings talk about, uh, clearly, the evil is, is really simply the absence of good. I don't have time to go into this now, but one of the things that I'm studying, I'm in a degree program in spiritual psychology. And part of the reason I went in that program was so I could, quote, legitimately talk about spirituality. Not only within the context of diversity, but just as in the context of living our life. But one of the things that's happening now is that science is proving so many of the uh, spiritual concepts that the religion, what the Baha'i faith talks about and other religions talk about, simple things like being kind to people, releases serotonin in their brain. So it's like we're always told in religion to be kind, to treat others the way we want to be treated. Now science is saying when you're kind to somebody, it releases serotonin in your brain and in the brains of others and in the brains of those who are even watching acts of kindness. You know, scientists start to improve almost virtually every aspect of what it says that we are supposed to be as spiritual beings. We know about forgiveness, and there's a lot out about the psychology of forgiveness and, and how healthy it is to forgive people, and forgiveness is the core of most religions. You go down the line of religious teachings, or spiritual teachings of religion, and science is proving them all out. So it's coming from every direction that spirituality has to be the way. Do you weave the concept of prayer in these workshops of introducing spirituality and the concept of race unity? The way that I deal with it is I talk about the fact that we have a higher and lower nature. People can relate to that from whatever religion. The goal of life is for our higher nature, which is the qualities of love, of mercy, of justice, of sacrifice, to dominate our lower nature of ego and greed and selfishness. And that's the goal of life. And so spirituality then, at a, at a very basic level, is how do you tap that core, that core of your higher nature? So then from there, different people will do it differently. It's through their meditation, it's through their prayer, you know, that sort of thing. But we all have that capacity. So that's how I bring prayer into it, not saying that prayer has to be the only way, but usually people bring that themselves. And meditation is becoming a very common phenomena across religious and spiritual, and even secular lines because of all of the research on that. So prayer and meditation come up almost naturally as the way to regenerate and refresh and renew. And people talk about staying centered. You know, we're all trying to stay centered. And so people resonate with that, that meditation and prayer help you stay centered and stay focused. And there's even research coming out about that. Neuroscience is talking about the impact that meditation has on the brain and on our ability to tap. They don't use the term higher self, but to, to center ourselves and come from a more loving space in our lives. The reason I mentioned prayer was when you mentioned the scientific research of spirituality, I had read a book called The Power of Water, and in there, science had conducted experiments of people praying over crystalline structures Mm -hmm. or conversely, 
targeting negative thoughts toward crystalline right. structures, and they discovered that prayer or negative thinking actually impacts the structure of the crystal. The molecular structure. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. That's one of the things we studied in our classes as well. And, and so when you think about that literally thought is energy, thought has energy. So you have negative thoughts that has an energy, that has an impact. It's interesting because there's a passage in the Baha'i writings that says we should oppose a thought of war with a stronger thought of peace and oppose thoughts of hate with stronger thoughts of love. And it makes a statement, and then it says that your thoughts, spiritual and strong, will become the thoughts of others. It's making a statement about the power of energy, just thought energy being able to impact the quality of life in society. And science has proven the same thing. There's a fantastic book called Power Versus Force that addresses this whole issue, but it talks about the vibrational quality of different thoughts and thoughts that deal with hate and fear. And those sorts of things vibrate at a very low frequency, and thoughts of, of love and justice and harmony vibrate at a higher frequency. So literally, love is a stronger force than hate. So spirituality you know, is always talking about the kinds of thoughts we have, you know, we should purify our thoughts. It's a basic concept of spirituality across the board, that we should think in a positive way. All those things that seem like they may be superficial if you don't look more deeply at it, but if science has proven that thoughts of love and harmony actually are stronger than thoughts of hate, then they become real forces in terms of making social change. There's a statement in one of the books that I was reading that, based on this power of thought and energy, that, according to this author, he said the British Empire didn't have a chance against Gandhi. <laughs> hmm. <laughs> because, of, Good point. because of his thought, because of his energy, that he was, the level of his energy that he was emitting. Or Martin Luther King, for that matter. Yeah, and the manifestations and prophets of God. I mean, when we think about Jesus Christ, when we think about Muhammad, we think about Baha'u'llah as a prophet founder of the Baha'i faith, clearly their energy is vibrating at a very high frequency, a very high level, and that's why they're able to impact people when they come in contact with them, because their energy is at such a, I don't know what the word is, it's at, at such a high level. And so Jesus Christ is crucified on the cross, but yet his teachings now are all over the world. Uh, Baha'u'llah is persecuted in prison for 40 years and writes 100 books and volumes while he's in prison. Seemingly no power, yet now there are Baha'is in every country and territory in the world working for world unity and world peace. Well, what is that? There's an energy that ultimately is coming out in society because it's so powerful. And so it can't be destroyed. To me, it all fits together in, in science and religion, which is another teaching of the Baha'i faith. Science and religion have to be in harmony. I take it your book is autobiographical. Yeah, it's written really as kind of like a day in the life, real briefly, because, you know, I don't want to talk a lot about my book. I mean, I want to like I'm an advertiser for my book, because that's really not the purpose of this. But it's been a lot of my life recently, and it was motivated by my, I guess, my faith, my teachings, the belief in the Baha'i faith that we have to have racial unity and harmony. But the bottom line is one day... I woke up and I started writing, and I just said to myself, it sure is a trip waking up black in America. It just struck me, and then I started writing. It was a flow of consciousness for about 38 pages. 
I didn't intend it really to be a book. I just said I'm going to write down some of the things I've experienced and have gone through, and then subsequently I decided to make it a book and frame it as a day in the life. These are the subtle and overt things that happen just as you go through life. And I try to convey real honest feelings. The ups and downs are the real honest feelings that I have. And that's why I say it's very candid, very honest. I don't sugarcoat the fact of the pain or the frustration or even the anger. But at the same time, like I said, I introduced this concept of spirituality as the way to get to that. And I include the experiences, not only my experiences, but the experiences of some people that have been a part of the diversity training or the race relations training that I've been doing for so long. So it's like weaving my life and some of their life experiences through a sort of a day in the life. There's a quote in the Baha'i writings referring to the African-American as the pupil of the eye. And I was wondering if you could elaborate on the source of that quotation and what its meaning is. For me, that's a very profound passage. The source of that quote is actually Baha'u'llah, who's a prophet founder of the Baha'i faith. And so to have a prophet founder of a major religion describe people that look like you as a pupil of the eye, and the quote is, through them the light of the Spirit shineth forth. And with the background of the way that African Americans have been deemed in the United States for so long, and then coming to a religion that totally reverses that and says it says we're like the pupil of the eye from the light of the spirit shineth forth. As we adopt that spiritual identity and as we adopt that thinking, you know, it starts to change in my mind what I feel I am, what I feel I can accomplish, what I feel my purpose is as a human being, because if Baha'u'llah, prophet of God, is saying that's who I am, then that's who I want to become. That's, that's what I want to manifest in the world. And so, in, in, in my view, it's a very profound passage. And I think it just speaks to the fact that there's an insight that people of color, people of African descent bring to the table. Now, in saying that, the Baha'i teaching suggests that all cultural groups bring particular gifts to the table. But this particular uh, quote is referring to people of African descent. And, and so... The mission of Baha'u'llah's teachings is to bring about this oneness of the human family where every group is really allowed to release its potential capacity in building this wondrous unity of the human family. So it's in that context, I think, the pupil of the eye takes on meaning. And then just, I'm being real clear about that because I want people to realize that this oneness principle is true. Uh, Baha'u'llah talked about oneness and unity and diversity that the human family, each member of the human family, has a critical part to play. And, and this is the age, and this is the day called the Day of God, the day when that will become a possibility, that will become a reality, not just in this country, but worldwide. I mean, that's the vision that Baha'u'llah brought, that we, we are going to have this complete unity that transcends one border and one country, but to the world. And I think that... It's a teaching of the Baha'i faith that there's a relationship between suffering and spiritual growth or spiritual depth. And when you have a people that had suffered for so many generations, then I can see why Baha'u'llah said that the African-American is 
resembles the pupil of the eye because through that generations of suffering, there's a spiritual depth that's brought to the table, as you said. Every culture brings something to the table because we believe in unity with diversity. And bringing that depth of spirituality to the table, I think, is a, a great benefit to the world. No, it is. You know, we talk about unity and diversity, and, and, and there's a lot of groups that talk about that. Bringing about the reality that's a lot harder than it sounds. On, on paper, it sounds wonderful, but when you have diverse ideas and temperaments and thoughts with all these histories of relationships that aren't always positive, when you bring all that together in one room for a discussion or for trying to live in the same neighborhood or in the same workplace, that presents certain challenges. So having particular qualities, and I think one of the qualities that it takes to be able to reconcile diversity and use diversity in a way that's constructive is the ability to be flexible, the ability to be resilient, the ability to be fluid uh, about things. And I think, you know, in addition to the other qualities, I think those actually are spiritual qualities as well that it's going to take to actually operationalize and bring into existence this unity and diversity. Because black people have had to be flexible, we've had to be resilient, we've had to make a way out of no way. All that is a part of the cultural, spiritual qualities, I think, you know, that we bring to the table. Now that you've written this book, what's next for you? That's an interesting question, and I haven't really decided. One of the things that I've concluded, just for myself in a very personal way, is that this race work is very intense and that I need to find a group of people that want to work on this together to pursue the spirituality approach because I've worked solo for a number of years now. So what's next for me is to formulate or bring together, I mean, this is what I hope to do, a group of people who want to pursue this goal of introducing spirituality into the race work. And secondly, the title of the book, Seeing Heaven in the Face of Black Men, I've realized over time that imagery is very important. If I can just digress for a minute, the prophet founder of the Baha'i Faith, his son was named Abdul Baha, and his name literally means servant of glory. And he came to the United States in 1911 and 1912, and his purpose in coming here was really to share in more depth with the Baha'is in this country, the profundity of his father's teachings. And so he shared a lot about a lot of aspects of Baha'u'llah's teachings, but one of the things he really emphasized was this principle of racial unity and racial harmony. And he said that the coming together of the black and the white would be an assurance of the world's peace. But the other thing that he did was he created new imagery, because at that time, 1911, 1912, there was no concept of black and white unity, really. And so he created this imagery. So he would say that uh, the diverse races are like the flowers of the garden and that the contrast brings out the beauty of each. So taking the negative things that he saw in society, he created this new image, at least for the Baha'i community. And he talked about the different races being like different kinds of jewels, emeralds and sapphires, etc. So all of a sudden, you know, he takes his negative backdrop and creates his new imagery, which didn't exist really at the time, you have to be able to visualize something before you can bring it into reality. So I realized the importance of having images. And so when I look at this heaven in the face of black men, one of my goals is 
really to promote that image. Just the terminology, just talking about it in that way, because the image of heaven and black men is a very powerful image. And so part of what I want to do is, is promote that image because I think it starts in your mind of how you see yourself and how you see others, and then you can make it become a reality. I'm not naive enough to think that all black men are exhibiting that image, but there's an expression that says, look at a person the way they are, they only become worse, and look at them the way they could be, and they become what they should be. And I think, again, that's a power of positive thinking. And I want to hopefully add my little bit to uh, changing that image and helping black people, but also helping white people see that there is heaven in the face of black men and, and see that pupil of the eye because it's there. So I hope to be a part of that, however small or however large. Well, Todd, thank you so much for talking with me. Oh, it was great. I appreciate it. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Todd Hewing, a racial and cultural diversity trainer and author of the book, Seeing Heaven in the Face of Black Men. For a copy of this and other programs, you can go to the website www.abahaiperspective.com. For information specifically on the Baha'i faith, you can go to the website www.baha'i.org, or you can call the toll-free number 1-800-22-UNITE. I hope you join me next time on A Baha'i Perspective.
God, refresh and gladden my spirit, purify my heart, illumine my
This is WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio station, streaming at www.valleyfreeradio.org.